0: Welcome to the Training and Response Podcast. This is episode 13, where we talk with retired fire captain, Bill Schneider, about considerations during a trench rescue.
1: Welcome back everybody to the ASAR Training and Response Podcast. With us this week is co-host, Carla Lewis. How are you this morning, Carla?
0: I'm great, hi everybody, thanks for joining
1: us. And for the first time ever, this is a listener request topic. We have retired fire captain, Olathe, Kansas fire captain, Bill Schneider with us today. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And we asked Bill to come uh, onto the podcast because we had a listener contact us and say, listen, we really want to know more about compromised ground and trench rescues. And whether it be uh, an animal victim or a human victim, the considerations about working in that dangerous environment are the same. And now our our extraction techniques may be just a little bit different, but before we even go into those situations, we need to have some basic knowledge to keep us all safe. And Bill has, he's going to give us his background, but is a trench expert and uh has spent a lot of time working with different issues of getting dogs out of areas um working with animals in compromised ground like mud um so bill if you can introduce yourself give our listeners a little background and then we can jump into this sure uh i retired last year after uh, 32
2: years on the olathe fire department and i actually did five years in california so you know 37 odd years uh, involved with the fire service uh had a, a, a grandfather and an uncle in the fire service, so I kind of followed their footsteps. And um, about the 1990 range, got really interested in rescue as a focus. Um, I've always been a, a rope tying guy, not tying guy with my Boy Scout upbringing. So uh, 1995, got involved with the University of Kansas, gave a train the trainer on Rescue Systems 1. And then it was Rescue Systems too, and then it was Structure Collapse, and Trench is thrown in there, too. So our, our little small department that I joined in 1987, Aletha, had two fire stations and three fire trucks. Now we're looking at Station 10 and 30-some-odd rigs. And the rig that I was on for most of my career was the Rescue Truck, uh, which handled all the tech rescue calls in the city, including vehicle extrication, uh, rope rescue, trench confined space so um, being involved with it all those years um, got an opportunity to learn many uh, different uh types of rescues and then do them and then actually go teach and so i i would offer up to anybody that you know if you can get a good training class and then use it and then go teach somebody else i would i would highly recommend that uh, as something you do down the road
1: So you listed a lot of, of your tech rescue background. Do you have a favorite discipline or or a a favorite specialty? Well, I tell you, uh,
2: I, I, I truly enjoy rope rescue because it's the one thing I learned that I'm using in all facets of rescue. We use it in confined space. We use it in trench. We use it in water rescue. And, um, if you get really good at ropes, it means that you can probably do all the other stuff too. So, um, when you look at, uh, Training in all those different disciplines, rope is the one constant thing that uh, you have to be pretty good about and know uh, know your limitations too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Bill, in all your years of uh, being at the fire service, have you have you had experiences with animal issues and rescues, and and also have you seen a change in um, the way the fire service is handling animal calls for for firefighters?
2: The short answer is yes, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to go more expand on that. Um, we, we obviously see animals in distress, uh, on the fire side of things. And, uh, I was just actually just looking at pictures the other day, Eric, of, uh, when you guys got our donated, uh, oxygen masks for the animals on our rigs. I think that was a couple of years yeah. ago. So, um, that was really cool to go through that process. And um, we have a lot of guys that are animal lovers on the fire department, not everyone, I'm not gonna lie to you, but uh, you know, a lot of times uh, on the fire side and even on the rescue side, we would arrive on scene and we would hear my baby, my baby, my baby, go save my baby. And they'd say, well, what's your baby's name? And they'd say Pookie or something like that. And we're like, okay, we're not talking about a person here. We're about <laughs> an animal. And then, where is the animal? And so, I mean, it means a lot to those uh, owners and individuals to save the animal. And um, by us doing that, it actually takes them out of the mix so that they don't become a victim. So, um, you know, we try to preach, you know, get your people out. We'll, we'll get the animals as, as fast as we can to them but as we can get out of them get them out as fast as we can. But, um, at the same time, um, you know, every situation is different. We, you know, we don't walk into work every day and say, Hey, I think I'm gonna go run a trench call or I'm going to go run a fire call. So being, um, involved with uh, the command and the size up and all that really can, uh, determine a, a good rescue effort, uh, to those. So the type of calls that, uh, I've experienced are, um, you know, animals in mud, uh, ice, and then um, we actually had a really um, involved one where uh, a couple was walking down the street and their dog ran out into the woods or the grass area. Unbeknownst to them, there was a, a manhole cover missing.
1: Mm. And
2: the dog went in the manhole cover and fell into a storm drain. And they're like looking around for this dog They come on this open uh, hole and the guy's worked the call for, I wanted to say at least two hours because the dog ended up down pipe and uh, we ended up putting a uh, rescuer in the level B hazmat suit and to get down into the um, storm drain, which was active with water. Wow! I take the dog, bring the dog up and um, we used ropes and tripods and all that to get the dog out. And um, ultimately the dog went to the vet. Uh, the, the couple came back about a month or so later with a big old bunch of barbecue for us. (laughs) And uh, they ended up spending $10,000 to save that dog because that was their baby. So um, that's pretty crazy because I was out of pocket. There's no insurance for something like that. So um, that was a good call, a good call that we uh, made a save on.
1: Yeah, I know. That sounds amazing. Well, for we're going to jump into the trench aspects here, and, and I'm going to give a little preface here for our listeners. You know, the things that we talk about today um, are coming from an expert that has personal experience of this. Please don't take this podcast as, hey, I heard Bill talk about this. I can go do it now. That's not our goal today. Our goal today is to give you hazard awareness, to kind of give you considerations that you need to think about in these rescues um, as you look at these situations, but the ultimate uh, – End result is you either go take your trench rescue certifications and get certified in it, or you identify the teams in your area that are certified in trench rescue that you would be supporting if there is an event. So I know that's common sense for most of our listeners, but we're going to throw it out there just in case we get somebody super excited about this topic and just want to go try things at home. Don't try this at home unless you're certified, folks. So, Bill, uh, start us off. Where do we start when we're looking at? a trench at scenario? Yeah, so
2: um, there's a bunch of uh, things I want
1: to uh, cover here and I'm not going to go in any certain
2: order other than uh, a, a, technically the uh, definition of a trench is something that is deeper than it is wider. And typically, um, that is typically deeper than four feet um, is kind of the, the rule of thumb. And we all know that There's plenty of projects around any town that uh, they're digging into the ground. And so um, these don't happen often, but they do happen very fast. Uh, Gravity still works uh, around dirt as it does above land. And um, a lot of times we see these at construction sites where um, the contractor uh, is, is is getting paid to do a job and you know, time is money and they got to get in and get out and they won't shore up the sides of the trench. And so they'll have a collapse. And unfortunately, sometimes there are people in those trenches where we see these trenches fail. And, um, you know, for us as rescuers, we, um, Obviously get a 911 call saying, hey, there's somebody in a hole or somebody if we if we hear that it's a trench, then it activates a whole different system than somebody falling into a hole. Um, so that's one piece of verbiage I like to pass on that if you're involved in a call like this or you come upon a call like this, please say that it is a trench and not a hole, because it it activates a whole nother set of um responders capable of handling
1: the trench. That's great. I, I would have never considered that because so often we have uh, situations where horses may be in a crevice or may be in a ditch um, and it, it may not actually meet the definition of trench. Um, so having, knowing that that activates a whole different uh, set of skills and, and responders is, is really interesting.
2: Yeah, I can give you a scenario that we, we ran a, a couple of years back uh, in Prairie Village, Kansas, where a gentleman was in the backyard digging a, uh, a trench for, uh, I think it was a drain line of some sort. He's by himself. He's digging down. He's digging down with a, with a machine. And then he got down out of the machine, got in the hole because he thought he saw something in the bottom of the trench and it sloughed in and came on him well he had his cell phone with him thankfully and he's like literally reaching up as high as he could to get a signal he gets nine one one, and they say what's your emergency he says well i fell down a hole so they sent an engine and a a, uh, medic uh, paramedic unit and the dispatcher starts asking well what were you doing he says well i was digging a trench and they go oh so this is a trench rescue they didn't say that to him so that activated uh three other departments to respond with a lot more equipment and it ended up taking about an hour and a half to really get him out of the trench. And thankfully he wasn't trapped where he was suffocating or anything. I think it was a good, good call uh, to uh, make a save on. So yeah, the big deal there first is obviously uh, say the word trench. If it is a trench, if you don't know if it's a trench, just say trench anyway, cause it'll bring a whole another response to uh, get the right people out there.
1: Great. What, what about different uh, scenarios? Uh, we, we've got uh, a, a trench or, or an open area uh, in the soil. What about uh, edge protection, soil considerations? What are we thinking about in those aspects?
2: Okay, so um, the, a trench can be a couple different configurations or the, the shape of the trench. Typically, what we see is a straight trench where a machine will be digging straight back Lifting the dirt up off to the side. And so when they lift that dirt up and put it in a pile, we call that the spoil pile and that's common language used across the country. And so what we're actually doing is we're loading that side of the trench wall with that extra dirt or the, you know, the dirt that's coming out of the hole. So we've got to be real careful on that side of the trench because we're adding weight to that wall. Now, the, it all depends on what side of the wall collapses, the, the spoil side or the non-spoil side. So that's something to consider. Um, they can be in the shape of an L, uh, where they're going to cut and make a left-hand turn to the street or wherever. And then um, the other one that we've seen is like a box trench where it's, um, it's wide on both sides, but it goes really deep. And those are typically used for like cisterns and stuff and, and uh, tanks and stuff like that. You know, these lines can be made, these trenches can be made for water lines, drain lines, electrical lines, tunnels. A buddy of mine out in uh, California was working on the tunnel that's going from uh, the Raider Stadium under the highway to uh, the the Strip, because that's how everybody's going to get there. And they're all going to be shuttled under this tunnel. Well, of course, you have to dig super deep in that type of world in a a crazy environment. So um, when we look at the types of soils, they are actually broken down into three types is what we uh, consider in the world of rest, t- trench rescue, and even um, construction guys are supposed to know this, um, they're, they're, con- they're considered type A, type B, or type C. C being the loosest and A being the most compact. Uh, so a lot of teams say, well, if we've had a trench collapse, it's a type C soil. But technically what's supposed to happen is there's supposed to be somebody there that identifies the type of soil before they go into the trench so they're going to take some um, dirt off of that spoil pile and do a couple tests, hand test, squeeze test. There's actually a, a machine out there. If you had one that could test the soil to see if it's really granular or really clay, uh, sandy, that type of, or a mix. Uh, but technically when we start seeing a type C soil, the worst type of soil, we're going to do a lot of shoring. And that's kind of be kind of the, the next lead in here is to, uh, what we do when we go into a, into a rescue mode.
1: Yeah. And you know, when we, when we talk about soil, I, and I don't see, well, I do see this every year uh, with either small animal, but here lately I've been seeing it with large animal issues um, are areas that are prone to sinkholes that may open up and, or, or, or be small on top um, and just be a small open area and a rear end of a horse gets in there. Um, or uh, livestock fall in there, but then underneath there it 's cavernous, um, and they have to open up the top of the ground and then they find this this giant hole, even though we 're calling that a sinkhole. If you were a responder, do you treat that as a trench and and can you talk about shoring and, and what that entails?
2: Well uh, you know every situation is different, and they all, pro, pro, they, all they all present their hazards associated with because I haven't even talked about water or electricity or any of that stuff that's around those sinkholes. And obviously if we're in an open area, then you wouldn't have those hazards associated with it. But, um, a lot of times, um, and I know the horse is a main deal or the animals, the main deal, you got them out because the people have sunk thousands of dollars. We get that. But, uh, in, in my world, number one is our people first. And, um, if we're going to make this safe for us to go in, uh, and think kind of as the animal second, that might be some fighting words to some, but, um, in reality, what <laughs> we can do, uh, is we can cut back or open up that hole to where it's going to be benched back, but with machinery and away from the animal, um, that's going to take a longer time. and may cause some other, uh, cave-ins if that's possible, but if you can't, then, um, we have to go use shoring to do that and that's not always the easiest with a sinkhole or a trench that has blown out at the bottom of the trench not at the top um there are different types of way that trenches fail they don't all fail the same way some some of them the whole wall will come in against the other wall partial uh cracking that type of things so um you know, I, I can't give a, a straight answer for all of those because they present so many different hazards with each type of trench or uh, failure. When,
1: when when we talk about shoring, we're talking about placing, um, and help me here because I need education too. Are we just talking about plywood? Are you talking about metal? What what constitutes proper shoring? And I know that's different for each situation, but uh, I guess where I'm going, if the lay person goes to Home Depot and ends up with a quarter inch piece of plywood, is that proper shoring if they slide it down in in a trench? Well, um,
2: it's better to have something than nothing. I'm going to
1: leave with that. Uh, But I will
2: tell you that the force of dirt can be uh, so great that it's, it it ultimately ends up heavier than concrete. Uh, Especially if it's a a compact, moist uh, dirt, it's going to create a huge load pressure on are shoring on the victims, on the animals, whatever. To give an example, of how much weight we're talking about on a on a Type C s- soil that hasn't broke off yet? A ten foot by ten foot by twelve foot deep section of dirt. This is a an engineered estimate. It can hold is weighs one hundred forty four thousand pounds. Wow! So when that sloughs off and comes in uh, and finally compacts into next to something, you're talking somewhere in the area of 300 to 800 pounds per cubic foot. And concrete is 150 to 300 pounds per cubic foot. So right away, that movement of all that dirt is really going to, you know, we, we don't do well in, in situations like that, humans and animals and that type of thing. So when we talk about shoring, we have to have shoring that's going to hold this amount of dirt back. And so we use shoring that's made of timber or as a pneumatic uh, metal uh, strut or a hydraulic metal strut. And then there's also screw jacks out there. And each team has different types of um, shoring. There are different manufacturers across the land. Um, Some of the more common ones, a paratech um, uh, has a, a, a quite a wide variety of of the pneumatic shores. There's a company called Speed Shore that a lot of the contractors use, and we've used those a lot in our uh, trench rescues for straight trenches. Um, It actually uses um, an environmentally friendly coolant where we can pump the shore out to apply a pressure against the sidewalls to hold that up. And then based upon that type C soil, there is what's called uh, tabulated data That tells us how many shores to put in place, how far apart vertically and how far apart horizontally, if that makes sense. So we don't want to put, we don't want to put too many. We don't want to put too little because of that type of uh, potential collapse that can happen. But once we really get all the shores set and done, then we can start looking at doing the rescue or putting somebody in the hole.
1: Wow. Yeah, I had no idea that the dirt would weigh more than concrete, and and you know we've we've heard the stories, and you know I haven't. My experiences uh, actually came when I was an animal control officer many years ago, uh, and I didn't know what I didn't know. And I had a, a Great Dane down a well. Um, I've had uh, dogs in in holes, and we've had horses in in you know deep creeks. Uh, that were fairly narrow, that, that um, you know, it was wet, rainy, muddy, and, you know, we, we didn't have full slough-offs of the side, but, you know, we were technically, I think by definition, in a trench, even though it was a creek bed, um, and should have had additional support.
2: Yep, so we've we, we run into some uh, overlapping with some of these other types of uh, rescues here, and and I'm going to hit real quick on the standards that we have to go by uh, for in the US and as a rescue company. So um, we're kind of um, bounded by the NFPA National Fire Protection Association. There's a, a trend, or there's a rescue operations and training for technical search and rescue incidents. It's a NFPA 1670. If uh, you guys ever want to get online and Google search some of that, uh, but that covers. Water, rope, trench, confined space, building collapse, all those are covered as to what we should be training on and prepared to respond to as a rescuer. And so with trench rescue, we get a little overlap with confined space because confined space is something that, you know, you're not supposed to be in all the time. It's limited access, uh, limited egress. Um, it could have the potential for a hazardous atmosphere and that could be anything from chemical to low oxygen. So that can run, we can run into that with trench rescue too. And then obviously we can use rope rescue involved with both of those scenarios. So um, a lot of times what we will do first, when we arrive on a trench obviously is conduct uh, a size up and we will typically the ends of the trench, if we're talking about a straight tent, straight trench, the ends of the trench are going to probably be the safest areas versus the sidewalls. And so what we will do is we'll actually put a ladder on each side of those trenches All right, each oh. end of the trench so that if the person or animal or somebody is in there and they can self-extricate themselves, like they you know throw them a shovel or we do a quick pull on the animal, then there's a way for that person or animal to get out. Mm-hmm. Obviously with the animal, you're going to have to have a, a slope a higher slope or something for the animal to try to get out but we'll first do that and then we'll start looking at the sidewalls and then uh putting some plywood up on top and the reason we do that next to the lip or the edge uh is we're going to try to um have our weight distributed around an area because we're you know Most of us are in the 100 to 200-pound weight range, and if we get about five or seven of us there, well, there's 1,400 pounds that we could probably, you know, separate out. And that's another thing that I want to talk about, too, is everybody wants to look inside the trench. Everybody (laughs) wants to come up, right? A lot of times, we get a lot of bystanders and others, police officers, you know, paramedics, all that stuff, that want to come up and see the trench. Okay, great. Take a look. Get back because you're adding weight to a place that's already collapsed or potentially can collapse. And the other thing we look for a lot on these trenches are the cracking. And, I'm, and so when you, um, especially in our summertime where the, the ground is dried out, uh, you'll see a lot of the cracking going from the lip back or toward the edge, we call those fissures. And so uh, if we can identify those areas, then that might be a place where we're gonna start looking at shoring that area first. And over or around the victim or the animal, so that we're going to make it a safe area for them, and then build some more shores away from that, and then finally make an entry into the trench.
1: Wow, lots of things going on there, and and it never even struck me about. Let's go look in the hole. <laughs> um. Happens every time. <laughs> Everybody wants to see it, and I've seen places where you know you have two
2: responding uh departments and they said okay department a you're on this side of the trench department b you're on this side of the trench well we just added a whole bunch of people on the side of the trench but so for us um getting the plywood on the edge of the trench would be a great thing if you guys could do that before we even get there if there's a delay uh in a trench uh rescue company to get on scene i mean and if there's a lumber yard or somebody that's got plywood nearby definitely uh put that on the edge of the trench and so that way you know that when people are standing there or coming up, the weight's going to be uh, distributed. That would be a great help.
0: So, so Bill, as I'm listening to this, you know, thoughts are kind of going through my head about, you know, our teams and, you know, sometimes they work with fire departments. Sometimes they're, their teams that are just animal people who have gone through some training, what kind of advice would you maybe give to, um, to maybe both of those agencies on how they can work together on a situation like this, maybe where we do have a a horse in a trench, and, you know, they might be the animal expert, but, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, you really, really need to wait for the fire department to get there to, to help with the safety aspect of this, because they have that knowledge, Um, and maybe the fire department doesn't, exactly have the you know the animal knowledge how can those um agencies work together to to complete a rescue safely
2: well i guarantee you that every department that's responding has an ultimate goal of a good outcome nobody wants to obviously show up and have something go wrong so uh right off the bat if we can get people to um come together before a scenario and do some training before a scenario and have a maybe a tabletop and or scenario down the road i think that would pay off tenfold down the road because i mean we we our team here um which is in johnson county just south of kansas city um we could potentially respond out of town out of county out of state we do um, coordinate some of our responses with the missouri side so that being said it's obvious that we can't train with everybody because there's so many people around us that we could but having those resources already identified Uh, like you guys to come and say, okay, well, this is what you need to know about the horse. Um, And we would be kind of more um, focusing on the trench and the shoring of the trench. But then, you know, again, these scenarios take hours Uh, Mm -hmm. and it's probably going to be at least an hour to hour and a half to do a good shoring job before anybody's going to enter a trench. And um, right off the bat, I mean, a lot of times, we make the call that this is gonna be a recovery. It's obvious that the trench wall has come all the way down and covered up the victim or the animal or whatever, and it's just not safe for us to go in a rescue mode. Um, but ultimately what we do, if it's a, um, or when it is a, a, you know, a victim, is we will short up as fast as we can, get down there, try to dig out or take a pulse or whatever to verify that it's a rescue or a recovery. And so when it is identified as a recovery, then we kind of slow things down because we don't want to get anybody hurt and it doesn't, we don't have to go fast. Uh, you know, the scenario has kind of gone a different direction. We may bring in heavy equipment and I really didn't talk about heavy equipment, but we may bring in heavy equipment to, to cut back the trench and they call that benching. So if you, uh, you think that like a, uh, a high school gym has benches, they will cut back the dirt to look like a bench, if that makes sense, on the sidewalls. So it takes a little time to cut that dirt back, and then we can walk down to where that victim's at and start digging. Um, I just want to say real quick is if there is machinery involved, um, we part of our training is shutting down that machinery and just leaving it there because the vibration of the machinery could cause another trench collapse. And so mm-hmm. we really look at our response with vehicles how close can we put vehicles so that we're not causing a vibration to cause another collapse? Um, Part of the, part of the training that we do is working with our uh, street departments and getting a vacuum truck to come in and um, literally suck up the dirt as fast as we can and and get that out of there because the faster we Uh get out of there, the faster we can get into the victim and do that. Now I've never done that where there's an animal involved but I guarantee you with a back truck that's running real loud it probably would scare the animal a little bit more and so it may cause the animal to move or whatever so we may not do that until we have access to the animal where you guys can come in and maybe give some meds to the animal to calm it down or whatever make it a little bit more uh, feasible to get that animal out.
1: Yeah, you know, you said a couple great items there that that have triggered some thoughts the the benching technique and and digging uh off to the side, you know, we've seen that successfully done with horses that they can actually walk them out instead of trying to do oh. a lift. Um but one question I had and I'm going to say this wrong so forgive my ignorance, the the when a victim is compressed for so long and then you relieve that compression on them and their blood uh, or, or their their uh heart rate drops their blood pressure drops what's that called uh compression compre- syndrome. Con- compre- compression syndrome yeah. so um, we yeah.
2: we ulti- so okay the scenario there typically is uh you have dirt collapsed around the victim from the chest down it it typically when it's chest up it doesn't end real well it could happen it could happen. <laughs> Well, I got to be serious with it. I mean, it, right. it, there are people that they put their hands above their heads and they create a void. Uh. And we may only see their fingers. We dig down and they break their hands open and yeah, they're alive. But as soon as we remove all this dirt, the compression syndrome kicks in and their blood pressure drops and they, you know, it's a traumatic deal. So um, a big thing for us is getting the medics in the hole, getting the, the meds on board that they need to uh, be ready for that. And that our rescuers need to kind of kick it into overdrive to get this person rapidly out of that hole because obviously he can't be treated in the hole. He needs to be seen, seen in a trauma center. So the same could be considered for animals. Obviously, we are, they are air breathers and they have blood and all that stuff too. So they probably would be able to hold up a little better to some of these um, forces, but it all depends on how deep the trench is and how much dirt has been um, forced on the
1: body. Mm, okay. That, that, that's really helpful. Uh, cause I know we have that discussion, uh, on many rescues where the horse uh, or, or whatever species animal, uh, has been compromised for a long time and is showing signs of extreme stress. Um, and you know, maybe, a, a totally encompassed in mud with just a neck sticking out and we have to have that conversation with the owner of, you know, we can make this attempt, but as you said, this may very well turn into a recovery rather than a rescue. And it's important to, you know, manage those expectations for our rescuers that are listening. Uh, that when you do come across a situation, that be very realistic. And and Bill, you said something to me when when you were still a captain when you went on scene and there was a possibility of of somebody dying. Uh, you never you never said to the loved one or, or to the family member that hey, we're here to save you know, we're, we're, everything's going to be okay. You always use a different term.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I, I learned a long time ago from a, uh, a former captain that retired years ago that I never say it's going to be okay, but what I always said, we're going to take care of you. We're going to get you out of here. And that that calmed their mind, that, you know, put them at a little ease that we're there to do that. But, you know, there's so much stuff that can happen um, under the skin or, you know, what we can't see. And I've seen way too many times, you know, the scenario is going great, and then all of a sudden, the blood pressure drops, trauma drops, whatever happens, and ultimately, they don't make it to the hospital in time, or they get to the hospital, and then they bottom out, and they pass away, so uh, that's just been my own little thing that I never said it's going to be okay. I just say, hey, we're here. We're going to take care of you. We're going to get you out of here as fast as you can, and um, a lot of time, that that calms them down a little bit, and it, that can be said, too, for the owners of the animal, you know, and not saying it's okay because we're here. Well, that doesn't mean that the animal can't pass away, but you know, say, Hey, we're here. We're getting the trained people to get this out and we're going to take care of you. And we're going to be here with you the whole way.
1: So over your years of, of tech rescue, Bill, do you have some trench rescues that, that stick out in your mind still?
2: Well, they all do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of different types of trench rescues that I ran. Obviously um, I think uh, if I, counted it up right. I ran 10 of them in the 32 years that I was involved. Um, some with my department, some with my other departments. Uh, I was teaching a class in St. Louis where uh, we literally finished the day of class work and all the alarms went off. Like there was a tornado response and all the guys were like, what's going on? And it ended up being a trench call in a town 20 miles away. And, and <clears throat> the a gentleman was in a L trench, the sidewall collapsed on him and all that was presented was his hand and it was purple. And, uh, the sad part about that was one of his family members was working the machinery uh, and watched this person technically die in front of his eyes. So once we identified that it was recovery, we stepped things back and uh, we did bench back the dirt took a long time, gave everybody a dinner and then brought everybody back in to go to work and dig the guy and get the guy out. And ultimately you know, nobody will ever uh, remember what we did, but you know they'll remember that we get took care of the situation. Nobody else got hurt because at some point everybody wants everything to go okay, and, and at some point, you know, you, you got to um, be sorrow f- for that person passing, but at the same time, they they don't want anybody else to get hurt too. So, um, in a lot of these scenarios we over. Um, shore the trenches for that very scenario so that we don't become another victim
0: so bill what kind of training would you recommend for people who who might see themselves in a in a trench situation what um you know where would they start for that
2: so a great uh, another to reiterate another great reference is that nfpa 1670 uh operations manual and it breaks all the um types of rescues into awareness, operation, and technician. And I think it would be great for you guys to at least start with getting an awareness trench class. And I can't overemphasize this enough. Go talk to your departments that have a trench team. I'm sure that they would love for you guys to come in and be a part of their response matrix. And then you do a little, um, handshake with Uh, them giving your folks uh, an awareness class. And then if they're going to do an operations class, which is a little higher um, training, that they could bring you in for that too. And as I'm looking through um, the requirements for uh, an awareness, I mean, it's not – some of the stuff I talk about is is already covered, but they go into more depth of recognizing the need for rescue, identifying resources, uh, initializing the emergency response, um, site control, scene management, recognizing hazards, that type of stuff for awareness. And then operations where you start getting a little more involved with, um, the size up and potential conditions. um, the rescue area is safe. We really didn't talk about this, but as soon as you can call a locating service or somebody that has, um, a reference to the stuff that's around ventilation is another thing in the middle of summer. It's, you know, 90 to hundred degrees out with the, With the wind going, if we can put a fan in that hole, just that cooling air uh, helps so much. You don't think about it, but it is cooler down in the dirt, and so that cool air can help uh, your victim or animal down there too. So, awareness and operation level training would be great uh, to me. um, If you came in with a group of, if a group of folks came to our department and said, "Hey, could we talk to you about something?" we would we would bring them in. No, no problem at all. And um, especially when you're associated with a great program like the ASAR folks, in him, uh, you know, you could use that as leverage to say, hey, we're, you know, we're part of a bigger group and uh, we just want some training if you guys can provide it. There are state programs out there, too. So um, the University of Kansas and the University of Missouri both have uh, a rescue training program. And maybe you reach out to your, straight, your state fire training service
1: programs. Absolutely. And, and we support that 100% also. Uh, and you never know what the answer is going to be if you never ask. Uh, Bill has been a, a great, what we quote unquote, dot connector and networker uh, and has, has been a supporter of the ASAR program long before we were the ASAR training platform. Um, Bill and I have known each other for a great many years, and back when we were just a, a small uh, five-person equine team, uh, we were cross-pollinating with the fire departments before the standards were even made, and here recently, uh, Bill joined us to uh, talk a little bit about, we did a, uh, an ASAR management level training this spring, and Bill came in and shared his experiences as a fire captain and scene control. And what do you need to do to take care of your people in all different situations? And what are those considerations look like? Uh, and that went over big. And while we're sitting there listening to Bill, um, we're talking about, well, what other classes do we need to take these managers through? And it was it was everything from you need an intro to break and breach to, to inter, introduction to recognizing hazardous collapse structures. Um, And it was giving, you know, opening doors of, duh, we've been in the field doing this for 20 years, and why have we never introduced this to the ASAR teams? Um, Because keeping your teams out of trouble is the number one priority and keeping them safe. And so uh, Bill was able to network us with the uh, Kansas State Fire Service, uh, Fire Marshal's Office, and, and Training Center. And we've been working with them. They just got a new confined space uh, truck in uh, for training, but uh, I went and met with them and spent about an hour and a half with them introducing the programs, talking about the new FEMA standards and, and that we're trying to continue to build on those for next level training. Uh, and they open arms said, yes. We want your guys to come and experience this because we don't want them to become victims. And we want to have an animal team to be able to support a tech rescue team with knowledge uh, if they're on scene. So we needed to know what those tech rescue team capabilities were. Uh, So going and knocking on the door and just presenting yourself as I want to learn goes a long way, folks. Don't, don't dismiss it.
2: You know, uh, a lot of our teams are fire department based teams and, we are tax supported, obviously, and we learned a long time ago that uh, if if you choose not to uh, help an animal in distress, that potentially right after that, you'll have a human in distress. And so um, we take those opportunities to say, hey, we understand that you're paying for us to be there with the big fire trucks going lights and sirens, you know flying fast down the road to take care of humans. But in reality, when we get a, when we get an animal rescue call, we're not doing the lights and siren thing, but we're there to help because potentially, and I would say, you know, probably a good chance is that if we don't come, who's going to do it. And if that person gets out there, um, ice rescue is a huge one for us in the Midwest here where we don't have a constant uh, thickness of ice like they do further up North that on any given day, there's a stuck animal on the ice. Well, all it takes is one kid to walk out there and now we got a, a viable victim in there where if they would have just called us on the front end and we'd take care of it, then we wouldn't have somebody else. I mean, last year, I think Aletha saved a deer off mm-hmm. of the ice for that very reason. And people were kind of um, getting on about why we would save a deer. It's like, okay, well, all it takes is one person to walk on a path and say, Hey, let me help you. And then he's in the water. So, um, I would have that mindset too of, you know, If you can, uh, again, address your local fire or whoever's doing your rescue company stuff uh, on the front end and have those conversations, then it's not a bigger deal when the incident actually happens and you take care of it and a good outcome.
1: That's great. Now, Bill, you've been in, in, before you retired, you were working on a project. um, And then now that you're retired, you've been a great spokesperson for it. But can you tell us a little bit about the program where you're uh, looking at firefighter gear and cancer prevention and, and tell us uh, our listeners a little bit about what's going on with that. Okay. So um,
2: about a year and a half ago, uh, I've been reading about obviously We're seeing higher rates of cancer in firefighters and, um, you know, being involved in it for so long. Um, it just shocked me that why all of a sudden are we seeing these cancers develop when, I mean, obviously we know that we go into the methyl ethyl bat smoke and we come out, we clean ourselves when we can and that type of thing. But, um, it seems like in the last couple of years we have younger folks getting more cancers and, um, The cancers are wide and varied from colon cancer to esophageal cancer to uh, lung cancer. And it just, it didn't make sense that uh, this was happening at at such a high rate. So I started reading about um, a lady on the East coast that her husband was diagnosed with cancer and he was treated. Well, she did some background work just because that's the type of person who she is. And she found out that um, our rescue gear our bunker gear uh, potentially has a chemical in it that makes it waterproof and is a potential cancer causer.
1: Mm. And so
2: uh, it's a fluorine-based hydrocarbon. Uh, You might have heard the acronym of PFOB or PFOS. Um, It's a derivative of Teflon, which was uh, made popular by DuPont. And yes, it's the Teflon pan type stuff. And so some scientists liquefied this stuff and they, um, impermeated it into fabric and then they called it a waterproof, uh, fabric. So the basic, uh, fabric, uh, that we use is PBI is a pretty popular one or Nomex is a popular one for, um, firefighting also. So that material would be, um, saturated with this liquid and then it's a waterproof agent. Well, they didn't tell us that for years. And so, um, this lady got a, uh, uh, a, a guy up in Notre Dame, uh, professor that, uh, started testing the gear and he's finding out that the older gear somewhere from the range of 1999 to 2014 had high, high rates of this fluorine chemical. And then, um the chemical was actually uh lowered in saturation or uh, concentration and so but it was still the same chemical after 2014. the thing that they're finding out with this is the chemical is now getting old and drying let's say it's been in the back of your car or on the shelf or whatever or being used a lot well the chemical is now separating from the fabric so it's not only becoming a dermal exposure it's becoming a respiratory exposure So um, a lot of the folks that I talk to, like chiefs who have their gear in the back of their car, not in a bag, I tell them, please put it in a bag, zip it up, because now it's been sitting in your car in the middle of summer. You obviously know how hot it can get in your car, and now it's becoming aerated in your air conditioning unit and blowing around. So we're starting to see some of these chiefs getting cancers, too. And you know they're thinking, okay, maybe it's just from the smoke and stuff I ate down the years of row. But um, ultimately, I kind of see this whole thing going. The, um, the 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 professor who's doing this testing out there, he has completed his testing process and he sent it to a third party organization to get verified. And we're waiting for that um, verification to come back. It should come back any day now. <clears throat> it's been expected between um, November of last year to now, anytime coming out, so that it can be published. And so, really, once that um, testing gets published, then a lot of folks think that they can have something to say against the um, DuPont company, the 3M company. 3M was the one that used it; they stopped using it. Uh, maybe you've heard of Scotchgard before? That was based <laughs> with the PFOA, PFOB. Um, the side shoot to this is okay. As a rescuer, why are you thinking about this? Well, um, some of the things that we're seeing is a lot of the uh, companies that sold Gore-Tex. Rain jackets were using this PFOB substance uh, as their waterproofing. So Mm -hmm. now it's in mainstream, not just firefighters. And the thing about this uh, PFOB chemical is they're calling it the forever chemical because it doesn't uh, dilute with water. And that's bad because uh, it's always going to be there. So all of the uh, fabrics. Okay, let's say we have to get rid of them. We well, take them into the dump and then they go into the ground and all that stuff leaches down into the water, the, the table, water table, and now it's getting into our drinking water. Mm. So uh, one of the other uses for this uh, PFOB was our F or our foam that we use for fighting gas fires. And uh, we know that over the years, thousands of fire departments across the world have been training with this foam. Well, you spray the foam, you put out the fire, and where does the foam go? Straight into the storm drain. Where does that go? Straight into the water table. So just recently, every military base has had a water test done of their water table, and they're finding out that uh, a lot of them, I mean a lot of them, have high, high rates of this PFOB and PFOA. So the, the offshoot to this whole thing is huge. Um, personally, I'm going to get my gear tested hopefully once the um, uh, the, the um, review comes out and we'll do a real big push uh, on the media side of this thing so that we can get the word out that you know hey, you guys are still wearing this stuff and this is a global thing this isn't just happening here in Kansas City. I want to let people know that this is a bigger deal so I mean it's bigger than you and me put together that's all I going to say and unfortunately um this has to come this way where there's really nobody really fighting for the cleanest w- uh, water or cleanest gear or whatever out there. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays clean up.
1: Wow. That is scary uh, on a great many levels. Is there a, a website or a place people can go to learn more about it or do they just um, need to Google it? Well, so currently
2: the lady that I've been working with, her name is Diane Cotter. She has a Facebook page and, um, it, the, the, the label of it is your, uh, turnout gear and PFOA, um, your turnout gear and PFOA If you, uh, um, do a search for that and look at a lot of the posted articles. Um, she has direct links to the professor at Notre Dame. She has links to a lot of, um, a lot of countries are way more ahead than we are with dealing with this. Australia is a big one. And a lot of European uh, countries are way ahead of trying to outlaw or limit the PFOA exposure that we're seeing.
0: Wow, Bill, that is, you know, all that stuff is amazing that you've talked about and kind of eye opening. And I had no idea that some of those chemicals were in some of the stuff that maybe we actually wear on a daily basis, you know, just kind of switching gears and wrapping things up. Is there any kind of final advice you would give to our responders that, you know, may see themselves in some of these situations and just kind of some p- final parting thoughts?
2: Yep. Sure. Um, uh, again, thanks for having me on. I really, truly appreciate it. Uh, it's a great opportunity. Um, I've known you guys for a bunch of years. And I'm sure I'm going to meet some more of you down the road. Um, you know, again, these things, these scenarios happen fast and, you you know the old adage is expect it when you least expect it because uh it's going to happen at O dark 30 and it's going to be raining or it's going to be the hottest day of the year and um all i can say is you can't do this by yourself you got to get help you got to get the right trained people with the right type of equipment and um i know sometimes that can lead to other issues but the ultimate Scenario is to get that person or animal out of the hole with the right plate, with the right tools and equipment and, um, and making a good save. So again, uh, if you haven't reached out to your local uh, rescue company, please do. I'm sure they would be more than happy. Now, if for some reason there's already an issue with uh, a department or whatever. I get it. All that stuff happens. There's going to be somebody else out there that wants to hear what you have to say or wants to hear that you want training. So please reach out that way too.
1: You bet. And as we start to, uh, well, start to continue to expand the ASR training platform, we will be looking, uh, I don't think we're going to get it done in 2020 guys. Um, just because we're so busy already, but we'll definitely be working on it so we can roll it out in 2021. But uh, be looking for the confined space awareness and maybe uh, if we can come up with uh, basic operations or, or intro to operations course um, to get your feet uh, wet, so to speak, and then break and breach classes. And again, we're, we're going to continue to work on this management piece as our government branch expands uh, starting this spring, uh, and we start to really look at if you are a manager, if you are a captain, if you are a sergeant and you're in charge of people, what these scenarios look like and, and how you handle those at a, at a command level. Uh, so we can hopefully start to build resources for you there also, but definitely go see your locals. Well, thank you, Bill, so much for joining us today. This has been a great intro and, and overview of Trench Rescues. Um, Carla, words of wisdom as we head out.
0: Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much, Bill, for speaking to us today. Uh, Check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and check out our website at asrtraining.com.